Hello and welcome to Shudder, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Claudia, and I just want to thank you so much for joining me as I dive into my very first episode. What makes a killer tick? What makes someone capable of taking the life of another human being? When we think about what makes a person unique, we can reflect on the way in which they were nurtured, or perhaps the way that they are genetically wired, as key foundations to moulding their personality. So, do we blame nature or nurture when it comes to moulding a murderer? Or maybe a bit of both? Despite all of the research, investigations and storytellings of killers throughout history, there isn't really a definitive answer, but breaking down human characteristics such as upbringings, traumas and motives of a killer does start to help us understand how some individuals do the things that they do. Today, I want to talk to you about a crazy case, a case that still haunts the most seasoned detectives. I want to talk to you about Catherine Mary Knight. Australia's first woman to be served life in prison without the possibility of parole. On February 29th, 2000, the small conservative town of Aberdeen, New South Wales, Australia, would be tainted by the slaughtering of John Price. It was around 11pm when Price returned home after having a couple of beers with his neighbour. Price was already asleep when Knight, his partner, arrived at his house uninvited. Knight made herself at home, watching a bit of TV and then having a shower and getting dressed into some black lingerie she had purchased just that day. The two then had sex and Price fell asleep. What happened next can only be described as sadistically calculated and evil to the core. Knight stabs Price and as he abruptly wakes up, he makes an attempt to get out of the house. He staggers out of bed to the door and down the hallway, leaving blood splatter on the walls and carpet. Price actually made it to the front door, which was evident from the amount of blood that was on the screen door. Unfortunately, Price succumbed to his injuries and Knight was able to stab him a total of 37 times to the front and back of his body. Following the stabbing frenzy, Knight proceeded to skin and decapitate Price, hanging his skin from a meat hook in the lounge doorway. Knight utilised the skills of her trade as she tactfully cut through Price's skin. This wasn't a rough job. It's reported that it was so expertly done that, quote, after the post-mortem examination, the skin was able to be re-sewn onto Mr Price's body in a way which indicated a clear and appropriate, all but grisly, methodology, end quote. Yeah, Yikes. If you haven't already put your snacks down, now would be a great time to do so, because this part just makes my stomach turn. As if murdering Price wasn't enough, Knight then proceeds to prepare a roast dinner with his remains. She has gone to full extremes, gravy and all. Price's glutes were cut into five steaks and baked in the oven. Two plates were set up at the dining room table, containing four of the steaks, vegetables and gravy. Knight had placed name cards next to these plates. These names were two of Price's children from a previous marriage. The fifth stake was found on the lawn. Some speculate that it was for the dog. Others think maybe Knight had tried to eat the stake before discarding it on the lawn herself. But I guess that's something that Knight will be the only one that has the answer to. 
Now, following all of this roast preparation, I was always under the impression that Knight had overdosed on pills and passed out on Price's bed. However, that's not how it happened. Knight left the crime scene as it was, she took a shower, she changed her clothes, and then she grabbed Price's wallet. Knight then drove to Muswellbrook, which is about 20 minutes drive south of Aberdeen. When she was there, she went to an ATM, she took out two lots of $500, and then she returned home. She returned her car to her house, and then she took the short walk back to Price's house, to the crime scene. It's important to note that that money she took out, the the total of $1,000, it was never found. So whether she spent it or she gave it to someone, we're not sure. As a means to try and understand crimes of this nature, we need to take a step back and consider why and how anyone could be drawn to commit them in the first place. After learning about this case in more detail, I wanted to understand Catherine Mary Knight better. I wanted to learn about her upbringing and come to my own conclusion on whether it was nature or nurture that drove her to do what she did. So, Let's rewind the clock back, 65 years ago to 1955. It's October in Aberdeen, New South Wales, Australia. Aberdeen is a small town in the Hunter Valley area. And just to give you a little bit of geographical understanding, Aberdeen is about three hours drive north of Sydney. When I say this is a small town, we're talking like one gas station, one grocery store, a few convenience stores, that kind of thing. Aberdeen is a real everyone-knows-everyone kind of place, and the population at the time was only about 1,500. Knight was born in Aberdeen to Barbara Rowan and Ken Knight. She was described to be fairly normal. She left school at 15 to pursue a career at the local slaughterhouse. Aberdeen was very much known for its slaughterhouse, with much of the town's population finding employment opportunities there. Luckily for Catherine, working in the slaughterhouse, it wasn't just a job to her, It really was her passion, and she managed to work her way up from cleaning to the boning table pretty quickly. She got to slice her way through carcasses every day, and it really was the dream for her. Catherine had three significant relationships prior to Price. She met her first husband, David Kellett, while working at the slaughterhouse in 1974. Kellett was the first partner to experience the Wrath of Night. On their wedding night, the pair engaged in sexual intercourse three times before Kellett fell asleep. It wasn't long before Kellett was woken up to Knight's hands around his neck. She was enraged that he had only had sex with her three times. We have to wonder though, how much of a shock was it to Kellett that Knight was this unhinged? It's reported that Knight's own mother told Kellett upon first meeting him, quote, you better watch this one, she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. End quote. The incident on their wedding night wasn't a one-off either. Kellett recalls a time where he woke up during the night with a knife to his throat, being accused of cheating. Knight had asked him, quote, You see how easy it is? Is it true that truck divers have different women in every town? End quote. On another occasion, a heavily pregnant knight burned all of Kellett's clothes and shoes and hit him over the back of the head with a frying pan because he had returned home late from a darts match. It seems like this was the breaking point for not only Kellett's poor skull, but also his ability to stay in that relationship. Luckily, he was able to get to his neighbour's house and he received the treatment for a skull fracture. Catherine had their first child, 
Melissa Ann, in May of 1976. Knight had been suffering postnatal depression after the birth, and Callot deciding to run away after the frying pan attack caused Knight to make a sadistic statement, in an attempt to make him come back. Knight placed the pair's newborn on a railway track as a train was approaching. Knight then went into a stranger's backyard, stole an axe, and threatened several people. If a local man had not seen and intercepted the incident at the railway, then the newborn would have been killed. Following the incident, Knight was arrested and checked into St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, just about an hour 40 drive north of Aberdeen. Only the day after the railway incident, Knight was able to check herself out of the hospital and return home. But just a few days later, Knight asked her neighbour to take her to the hospital because Melissa was sick. As soon as the neighbour's daughter had gone inside to retrieve Melissa for Knight, Knight slashed her neighbour's face with one of her knives and demanded her to take her to Queensland to find Kellett. The woman was able to escape when the pair stopped at a gas station, but Knight was quick to retaliate and she had taken a boy hostage and threatened him with a knife by the time the cops had arrived. Following this episode, Knight was admitted into Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, which is about an hour 50 minute drive southeast of Aberdeen. During Knight's time in the psych hospital, she confessed to a nurse that her intention at the service station was to kill the mechanic, because he had helped fix Callot's car, which therefore enabled him to get to Queensland in the first place. Her plan was from there to travel to Queensland and murder both Callot and his mother. However, upon hearing of Knight's admission into Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, both Callot and his mother chose to return to Aberdeen in order to support her. By August of 1976, Knight was released and put into the care of her mother-in-law, and along with Callot, they moved to Woodridge, Brisbane, which is about eight and a half hours northeast of Aberdeen. Knight did go to work at a slaughterhouse in the nearby town of Ipswich, and in March of 1980, Callot and Knight had their second daughter, Natasha Marie. However, just four years later, in 1984, Knight left Callot and returned to Aberdeen, where she lived with her parents, until she then moved into a rental property in the nearby town of Muswellbrook, which she was familiar with due to her schooling there. She returned to the local slaughterhouse, but following a back injury, she went on the disability pension and was given a housing commission house in Aberdeen. It was 1986 when Knight met David Saunders, a local miner. The trend of abuse from her relationship with Callot was carried through into her relationship with Saunders. It only took a few months of dating before Saunders moved in with Knight and her two daughters. But luckily for Saunders, he kept his apartment, which meant whenever he was thrown out by Knight, he still had somewhere to go. Probably one of the most horrific facts I have read about this entire case was that on one occasion, about a year into the relationship, Knight had gone into Saunders' backyard and slit the throat of his eight-week-old dingo puppy. It was all about these power moves for Knight. Everything she did was to convey a clear message that she was in charge. By June of 1988, Knight gave birth to another girl who she called Sarah. It was at this point Saunders thought he'd better put a deposit down on a house which Knight apparently decorated with animal skulls, skin, traps, and a whole other lot of creepy shit. At this point, it probably won't come as a surprise that after a classic fit of anger in which Knight burnt Saunders' face with an iron and stabbed his stomach with scissors, 
Saunders left Knight. Now Saunders was pretty onto it because this dude went into hiding and despite Knight's attempts to find him, he stayed hidden. It was only to see his daughter months later that Saunders found out Knight had gone to the police and was issued an apprehended violence order or AVO against him after she spun this entire yarn that she was scared of him. And then there was John Chillingworth, her last partner before Price. Knight and Chillingworth had previously worked in the slaughterhouse back in when Knight was only 18. At this time, Chillingworth was married and the two just formed a good friendship. But by 1990, when Knight was 35 and the two crossed paths again, they began a relationship. Knight soon became pregnant and she had a son, which she named Eric. This relationship was fairly short-lived, as Knight left Chillingworth after only three years in order to be with the man she was already having an affair with for some time. And now we have reached the critical point in this case, the part that circles right around to Knight and Price's relationship. Price had three kids of his own, two of which lived with him, and one lived with his former wife. Cracks began to show within their relationship quickly, but they had something in common, something that brought them together, and that was drinking and having a good time. Despite Price's reputation for being a hard drinker, he was said to be an incredibly hard worker. He was always the first to show up to work, despite how many drinks he had had the night before. Price really was, quote, a blokey guy, end quote. So finding someone who liked to drink, smoke, and socialise with the same loud and boisterous crowd was a match made in heaven for old Pricey. Well, that's what it seemed. Knight was mentally and physically violent. Having power and dominance in her relationships was everything to Catherine. If someone tried to cross Catherine, she would stop at nothing to make sure she got her revenge on them, even if it meant putting herself on the line. There was actually a point during their relationship where Price tried to end things with Knight. This was following an occasion where they had an argument over Price's refusal to marry Knight. So, she took it upon herself, and she videotaped a first aid kit she found in Price's house that she believed he had stolen from his workplace. Knight then ensured that Price's boss received this video, which ultimately resulted in Price being fired from his mining job of 17 years, despite the fact that that first aid kit was expired and Price had taken it out of the rubbish. It seems at this point in the relationship, Price's friends were able to get through to him, and he actually kicked Knight out. But a few months on, and Price was willing to restart his relationship with Knight. However, he told her that she couldn't move into his house. At this point, things appeared to be even more volatile than before, and Price became isolated from his friends. By February of 2000, the month of the murder, the assaults against Price were at an all-time high. Two nights before the murder, Price woke to Knight in his room holding a knife. He ran to his mate's house nearby and he confided in them that he was feeling super unsafe around her. Following this incident, Knight had taken out an AVO against Price, claiming that he was the abuser. He was so scared for his safety and the safety of his children that on the 29th of February, he went to Scone Magistrate's court on his way to work to take out a damn restraining order against Knight. The distress Price, a blokey Australian man, was feeling was clearly so evident that his colleagues asked him what was up that afternoon at work. To which Price told them, I think she's going to do me in. It's really clear that 
he knows something is going to happen and as much as he didn't want to go home, he knew he had to because he didn't want her to do anything to his kids. When he arrived home from work, Knight wasn't there and neither were his kids because she had sent them off to a friend's house for a sleepover that night. This was so calculated by Knight. You've got her getting the kids out of the way and you've also got this strange and entitled video she had taken on her video camera the night before. What Knight had done was she'd She'd gone over to her daughter's house, daughter Natasha's house, and recorded a video that a lot of people believe to be a will of sorts. During the recording, she is heard to say, quote, I love all of my children. I hope to see you all again, end quote. I mean, come on. Knight then took Natasha out for a dinner, and from what I can gather from Natasha's own testimony, Knight seemed unstable, and Natasha said to her, quote, I hope you're not going to kill Price and yourself, end quote. And if this wasn't enough evidence that she was clearly showing signs of doing something crazy, she even told her own brother a few months prior to the murder that, quote, I'm going to kill Pricey and I'm going to get away with it. I'll get away with it because I'll make it out that I'm mad, end quote. So yeah, this was calculated to the ninth degree, man. Anyway, once Knight had taken Natasha out for dinner, this is when she made her way over to Price's house, at which time he was already asleep. Remember how I told you Price had gone over for a couple of beers with his mate? Well, as they sipped a cold one together, he confided in his mate that if his ute was still in the driveway in the morning, she'd done him in. Police were quickly alerted to check out Price's residence. Detectives got there quickly to be faced with the horrors that waited for them in that house. I can't even begin to imagine how I would cope with what they had to see that day. Most of the video footage of that crime scene has been locked away from the public eye forever, but the PG-13 version I was able to find myself online still gave me the craziest full-body chills. Officers and detectives who did have to watch it were scarred for life, many of which are still suffering and rely on regular therapy to deal with PTSD. Detective Sergeant Bob Wells stated that, quote, it's an image I'm still trying to come to grips with today, end quote. When it came to the trial in October of 2001, Knight stuck by her word. She went into a manic frenzy as the crime was being described to jurors. She knew exactly what she needed to do to be deemed insane at the time of the killing. However, multiple court-appointed psychologists confirmed that, as twisted as Knight was, she was not insane by any means. She was aware and present the entire time. Although Knight had pleaded not guilty at the beginning of her trial, she changed her plea to guilty. And on November 8th, Justice Barry O'Keefe sentenced Catherine Mary Knight to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Along with the sentencing, O'Keefe told the court, quote, The last minutes of his life must have been a time of abject terror for him as they were a time of utter enjoyment for her, end quote. Today, Knight resides in Silverwater's Woman Correctional Centre, where she is said to be, quote, Nana, end quote. Knight's need for control and power is still very much prevalent, and nobody would ever try and mess with her. All I can say is, thank God she will be stuck playing Nana in there for the rest of her life, and not out in public with us.
Despite this being my very first episode, I hope that it was somewhat entertaining and informative. Um, and hopefully, hopefully you'll like to join me for another episode. Um, if you subscribe, you can get notifications and have a listen whenever I do produce uh, an episode. And you can follow me on Instagram at Shutter Podcast, and I will keep updating on there too.